and welcome to Grilling, the podcast in which chefs from around the world talk to me about their lifelong relationships with food, kitchens and cooking. And it being a show in association with Weber, we obviously have a natter about barbecuing too. You find me in the sunkiss garden of a beautiful West London home because in this latest season, we're not only talking about barbecuing with our guests, but actually getting them to make something on a Weber Genesis grill as well. Yotam Otolenghi, Andy Oliver and John Tarot have already joined me here and today is the turn of an absolute legend. Now, Marco's name has probably come up in conversation more times than anybody else during the three seasons of grilling. So it's an absolute pleasure to finally get him on. Marco Pierwhite, you're actually the, the reason why this podcast actually started. Because I wanted to do something with chefs and people in the food industry that was about pivotal moments. And I was trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do. And I was having a conversation with Tom Kerridge. And Tom Kerridge said, when I read White Heat, it completely changed my life. He decided I didn't want to be that chef. I wanted to be that good. He didn't necessarily want to be you, but he wanted that passion and that desire to do it. And, and I kind of figured that that must be a story you hear on quite a regular basis, that you're a lot of chef's inspiration. I'm accused of it. No, but if I think of some of the chefs I know... There's certain moments in, in their life which ignite something and something happens. If I think, I went to work at the Hotel St George in Harrogate and on reflection, why was the Hotel St George in Harrogate important? I got £15 a week living. But what was important is it took me off the council estate. So by default, I escaped that working class world that I came from. Because your dad was a chef, of course. My father was a chef, my uncle was a chef, my grandfather was a chef, my brothers were chefs. And in those days, being working class, you tended to follow your father's footsteps, being a boy. So had my father worked in the mines, I'd have gone down the mines. Had he worked in the mills in Leeds, I'd have gone to the mills in Leeds. Had he worked on the land, I'd have worked on the land. And so therefore, I never wanted to be a chef. I never thought I was gonna leave school. It didn't even enter my brain. But then one day I was told that I'm leaving school and I've got to go and find a job. And sort of, you know, I'm not the brightest and my school reports would show that. They would show that I was consistent because it said the same every year. You say Marco could try harder. Marco finds it difficult. Marco's easily distracted every year. <laughs> and it sounds consistent. Yeah. But the truth is they were really writing about themselves because when I think back, they could have tried harder with me. Yeah. They found it difficult to inspire me. They were easily distracted. Yeah. And so the reality is, is, it's about capturing someone's imagination. And so going back to being catapulted into Harrogate, living in this sort of rather nice hotel, being 16 years old, actually my service was really the most interesting service in the world for the first year. I never did service. Mm. My, the chef employed me as an apprentice but not to be an apprentice chef. I realised a week later why he employed me. It was to run to William Hills with his bets. I knew more about, I knew more about the horses than I did about food. But that magical moment though happened at the George. Because in the afternoon, because I was 16, I used to go to the, see Ken and Bill, the two hall porters. And in those days, one of the services hall porters supplied to their clients was polishing their shoes. So customers would come up and put their shoes on the hall porter's desk and ask them to be polished for dinner. Yep. So I used to go into the back of the hall porter's lodge, polish the shoes, have a cup of tea with the boys, because I felt more comfortable with them than I did with the chefs, because they were elderly. Yeah. And they were nice and they were kind. And one day I walked in, and where I used to sit, there was a little book. And on the cover of that book, it said, The Egan Ray Guide to Hotels and Restaurants in Great Britain. I'd never heard of Egan Ray. I started flicking through it. And what I realised was that restaurants had stars. One, two and three. And I'm flicking through it. And I see that the best restaurant in Britain is a restaurant called The Box Tree in Ilkley in West Yorkshire, which is 12 miles down the road. Yeah. So that evening I go back to work and I think to myself, if I'm going to be a cook, maybe I should work in the best restaurant in Britain. A day goes by, 
a week goes by, a month goes by, two months go by, three months go by, four months go by. And then one day I pluck up the courage to approach Box Tree for a job. And on the day I apply for a job, a young cook had given their notice. So I get an interview. And I go to Box Tree, and I thought interviews only lasted two minutes because I'd only ever had one. Yeah. No, no, this was two hours with Mr. <laughs> Reed and Mr. Log. It was, it was extraordinary. But what happened was I walked into this restaurant and I'd never seen anything so beautiful in my life. It was like my life had turned from black and white into colour. And you may remember black and white TVs and then the oh, colour yeah. TV. Yeah. I was just old enough to remember both. And it was very magical and very inspiring. And so I go to work at Box Tree, and the head chef is a man called Michael Lawson, who had done his apprenticeship in the Queens in Leeds, in the same kitchen where my father had done his apprenticeship. Wow. And so Michael took me under his wing. And Box Tree was rather special and quite old fashioned, in a sense that the bosses became your parents in a strange and peculiar way. Right. And so at 10.30, all the chefs would clear down and then they'd run off at just before 10.30 to get the last pint in the Rosen Crown. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I was 16, 17 now by the stage and not old enough to go to the pub, I used to have to go and we used to have to say goodnight to Mr. Reed and Mr. Long. So they'd send me up there while they went for a quick pint because they knew the bosses liked to talk. But I kind of liked it really. It was sort of like gastronomic Jack and Aubrey. Yeah. It was extraordinary. So they would tell me in the most magical detail. They spoke in a way which was so visual that I was almost there. So they talk about Maxime's La Tour d'Agent, La Grande Fifo, uh, Taivon, Lucas Carton, Charles Barrier, Bocuse, Trois Gros, the list goes on. And they talk about all their specialities, but in great detail. And so for me, it was fantastic. I'm just absorbing all this information of the, this three-star world in France. And then they tell me about the great restaurants of London, like the Connaught with the great Michel Bourdin, the Warside with Michel Roux, his brother Albert La Gavroche, Macquizimi Gumuron, and Jean-Louis Dabayot, Pierre Goffman. And I was just absorbing all this information. So that little book by Egan changed my life, but this was even more extraordinary what happened next. If I'm talking too much, tell me and I'll stop talking. No. <laughs> right. the, the other thing I want to sort of pick up on is, because you sort of said that school said the same thing, that you know that you could concentrate, you could try harder, and, and, and I think rightly so, you're sort of saying that teachers maybe could have tried harder with you. So when you... I'm glad they didn't. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so when you were working um, in Harrogate, did you find that there was inspiration there? Were you enjoying cooking from the start? Well, firstly... I was motivated by fear. Fear that I instilled in myself. That fear of failure. Right. That fear of being sacked. That fear of having to pack my bags, leave my room and get the 36 bus back home and tell my dad that I've been sacked. And the shame. And so I worked really hard. And so I didn't question anything. But the one area I did like was every day they'd do buffets in those days. And so they used to make it a big thing of their buffet. So you do poach the salmons in the kettles, in the fish kettle, with the cucumber and aspic it. Yeah. You do the, the chauffoire of chicken with the sauce chauffoire. And so it was quite, that was quite beautiful and, it, and, and they trusted me with it. And so therefore, because I was quite creative, that I was very lucky that I could do that job. Yeah. But it was when I went to Box Street, that's where it all started. Yeah, because I didn't realize there's another guy called Michelin. And yeah. Boxy was one of only four restaurants in Britain to have two stars in Michelin. No three-star restaurants and about eight or ten one-stars. So if you looked at the map of Britain, it was like a gastronomic desert. And there's little Boxy with two stars, just extraordinary. But what Mr. Reed and Mr. Long did, they were the jackdaws. They would go to Paris. For example, in 1980, Rostang won three stars yeah. in his restaurant La Bonneberge in Antibes. Yeah. The two boys of the box tree go to Antibes. They have the dish, a fricassee de romain à la brumoise de Ligon. So Tuesday afternoon, they call through Michael and they, the bosses tell them what they've eaten, this dish, and they'd like it for supper. 
So at six o'clock, they sit in the snug, and the two lobsters with the, um, the champagne sauce, with the Brumas de Legumes, goes out. 6.30, Michael go, and they'd make amendments. Next night, they'd have the same again. 6.30 would go, make a few more changes. Thursday night, they'd have it again. Perfect, exact replica. They didn't take inspiration, they, took, they wanted it to be exact. Yeah. Which was quite interesting, because it, yeah. it gave me insight into these restaurants. But they had this ability, that a great palate did Mr. Reed, <clears throat> and, a, and a, almost a photographic memory. And bear in mind that back then, there were no mobile phones, so no one's there taking Instagram pictures of their food. It's purely you're sitting there with the memory. And memorizing. Yeah. yeah. But they were extraordinary, and um, that's where my whole love affair started with food was with, with Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Reed, Colin Long, who were my proprietors, Michael Lawson, and then Mr. Lamb, who was, during the daytime, I used to call him, he was the baker, the petty four maker, the dessert maker, and at night time he was the head waiter. <laughs> yeah, at five o'clock he'd take off, his, he'd have his staff meal and put yeah. on his tuxedos and go and serve. Fantastic wow. man, fantastic man. He'd started in the hotels in Harrogate. So suddenly you've, you've got that, inspiration that like you know that the lovely analogy that suddenly your world changed from black and white to color is that when the focus happens you said that what happened in the box tree was was even more significant well they told me about the restaurants i told you the french restaurants yeah. the ones in london and so i wrote to gavroche and i wrote to Tuton glen just outside christchurch in the new forest mm -hmm. and the chef there was a young chef called christian delte He'd done his training in Toigro, in Rouen, in France, three stars Michelin, went to Connaught, went to Gavroche, and then became head chef. I'd seen an article on him and his food in House and Garden. Gavroche sent me back an application form in French. I tried to fill it in. I make a mess of it. It's too embarrassing to send back, so I threw it away. <laughs> I get invited for an interview. So I get the, the coach from Leeds down to Victoria, from Victoria, I go to Waterloo Station. I get the train from Waterloo down to New, New Milton. I go to New Milton, I meet Christian Delta, very nice man. And he offers me a job in the pastry. Well, the truth is, I don't want to be a pastry chef. I want to be a saucier. Because when you think of the world that I came from, there were more chefs than establishments. Most chefs never became a head chef. They became a chef poissonnier, a chef saucier, chef rotisseur, chef entremetier, chef yeah. garmanger. That's what they became, a chef tonneau. And so I get back to London and it's sort of getting dark and I'm a bit disorientated. And there I am just outside Waterloo Station and I see this Royal Mail man and I said, excuse me, sir, how do you get to Victoria Coach Station, please? He said, I'm going there, I'll drop you. So I jump in the, uh, his little van, little red van. He takes me and drops me. I say, thank you. And I go, and I've missed my coach. So now I've got to walk the streets. Until How old are you at this point? 19. Okay. And look, 19 today is 19, but 19, 40 years ago, over yeah. 40 years ago. Yeah, as a northern old, lad going down yeah, to London. Yeah. <laughs> totally naive. So I'm outside the back of Victoria Station. And I think if I walk up this road and turn right at the lights and then turn right again and turn right again. I just go around this giant circle. So I walk up this road and I turn right at the traffic lights. I find myself walking down Pimlico Road and I get to another set of traffic lights and I turn right again. I'm in Lower Sloan Street. I find myself looking through the window of this smart restaurant and I can see it's posh by the way the, the, the clients are dressed by the service. And I take a step back and I look at the name above the canopy and it says La Gavroche. And I thought, wow, this is the restaurant where I wrote to. And they sent me the CV back in French. Yeah. So I thought to myself, in the morning, I'll go and knock on the door before I get my bus back to Yorkshire. So I go in the morning, knock on the back kitchen door. The door opens and it's answered by a boy called Balou. What Baloo does, Baloo makes the bread and does the mise en place for the pastry. He said, well, we don't open lunch. But he tells me how to get to Rue Head Office. He said, walk down Lower Sloan Street, onto Chelsea Bridge Road, over Chelsea Bridge, Queenstown Road. When you get to the top of Queenstown Road, turn left down Wandsworth Road. It's about 300 metres down there, 
on the right, you'll see it, R-O-U-X. Sounds really easy. Nah. But it was like some magnet, was, some magnetic force was pulling me. I get completely lost. Because remember, I've been up for over 24 hours. Yeah. I'm exhausted, truly exhausted. And I end up completely lost. And I walk to the top of this road and almost maybe 40 yards to my left, facing me, I see R-O-U-X, Rue. I think that must be the head office. So I walk through the door and on the desk to my left is the great man himself, Albert Rue. Wow. And he tells me, what can I do for you, young man? So I tell him this story, and he must think that I'm a complete and utter lunatic. <laughs> and I, I even tell him about the application form that they'd sent me, and, um, <laughs> and I messed it up, and I threw it in the bin, and then I went to Tute and Glen, because they'd offered me a job. Da -da 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 -da. I got lost, and I walked past your restaurant last night, and um, then I met this man this morning, and he told me how to get here, and so I've come to see whether you've got any vacancies. So he said, where did you work? I said, I'm at Boxtree. He said, how long have you been at Boxtree? I said, I've just been there over two years. And he said, the best meal I ever had in Britain was at Boxtree. I thought it was very nice of him. Um, but nothing to do with me because I was just a kid. And so he gives me a job. And I get a job as a, a commie. I start as Gavroche as a commie. And I spent three and a bit years there. So when you, do, when you make the move, so, so you do that, you get the job, and then you go back home, obviously, hand you notice, get yourself done. That's a big move, you know, except for the fact that as a 19-year-old back then, to go from Leeds as a working-class lad who's working in a great restaurant to suddenly go to London. But here's something, what was quite bizarre, and I often think back, like Sam on the riverbank fishing, because one of my favourite pastimes is just watching a float. And it's amazing everything that comes through your mind and you start to reflect and in a strange and peculiar way you start to relive your life and feel all those emotions. And I relived it. And you know, I didn't question anything. Yeah. I didn't question anything. I had no fear. It was bizarre. It was like if something was just pulling me. And you know, is Mr. Reed and Mr. Long when I think back about Mr. Eden Long, it's one thing I always say, I always say, I think of teachers, and not necessarily teachers I went to school with. Yeah. I think of people who teach you well, whatever you do. If you think of all the teachers you had in your life, yeah, yeah, yeah. they all have one thing in common to teachers. One thing. They have the ability to tell stories. Yeah. If I think of Mr. Reed and Mr. Long, if I think of Michael Lawson, if I think of Ken Lamb in Yorkshire, Amazing stories they told me. Yeah. And that's why I believe today that stories are way more important than recipes. Okay. A story can inspire you. Yeah. A recipe can confuse you. It's, and I think of all those people who I worked with, whether it was Kaufman, whether it was Alba, Michel, you know, Nico, um, Raymond, they all told stories. Yeah. And it's about taking the inspiration from within the stories. So when you started the Le Gavroche, how different was it in terms of culture to what you've been used to in Ilkley? Well, I didn't understand anything that was being said. Course, yeah. But you're told, the first thing you're told is to say, say an order comes on, Samage, you just say, oui, chef. So I would say, yes, chef, to, I don't even know what I was answering. Really. <laughs> yeah. Just a lunacy. And the chef, René Bajard, to begin with, hated me because he didn't like the English. Right. The sous chef was a man called Danny Crow. Mm -hmm. Danny Crow was like me, humble beginnings, Italian mother, English father. He took me under his wing. Yeah. And if it wasn't for Danny Crow, I may not have survived. Had I had more money than I had, because by the time I'd been rinsed by a cab driver, I had seven pounds 36 p to last me a month. Wow. I mean, it was extraordinary, I mean, he took me all the, I got, I got this cab, he obviously knew that I'd just arrived in London. He took me all over the place, and I think back, he took me down to Fulham Broadway, he took me there, he took me there. Yeah. It was like the most expensive cab journey in my life. And I had £7.36p when I got to the Rue Head office. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. And I had one week, Mr. Albert put me in this B&B called the Albion Hotel, which was a B&B. &B. And um, I had to find somewhere to live. And I, and a boy I was working with was a boy 
called Victor, and he introduced me to this couple, Mr. and Mrs. Gregory, from Jamaica. Uh And I rented it for a year of my life. I rented a room in their house with Mr. and Mrs. Gregory. They were very kind to me, very nice. And it put great stability into my life. And I enjoyed my time there. How hard was it? And had you almost decided at that point that this is it? You know, you, you, you said that you didn't want to be a pastry chef because at the end of the day, very few chefs become head chefs. So you'd almost made that decision as a 19-year-old. So you start at the Gavroche. And are you kind of aware of the fact that there's a trajectory that you want to follow at that point, do you think? I believe in life, if you have a dream, a vision, a fantasy, whatever you want to call it, then you have a duty and a responsibility to yourself to make it come true. I like that. Because no one can make it happen for you. I had a dream and a vision. So going back to the box tree, saying goodnight to the bosses in the little Chinese room, they used to tell me that the finest food in France was in Chalbarrier, which was three stars in Michelin. But they said the number one restaurant overall was a restaurant called La Serre. And La Serre had three stars in Michelin and five red knives and forks. Right. There was no restaurant in Britain that had Michelin stars with five red knives and forks. Yeah. The only establishment in Britain to have five red knives and forks was the Ritz, but no stars. So for someone who's listening, what does the knife and fork mean as opposed to... It's stars? for service, it's for environment. Yeah. It's for wine and this, everything. It's the whole caboodle yeah. out front. So when you think you walk... See, because I'm a great believer when you walk into a three-star, you should know you've walked into a three-star. Yeah. You should almost be intimidated. Walk into a three-star should be like falling in love with the most beautiful girl in the world. Uh-huh. And that first time you take her to bed, you're so intimidated by their beauty. But you know, the excitement dissolves your fear. I like that. And then you enjoy it. And that's what a three-star should be. When you walk into a three-star, you should be so intimidated. Yeah. It's like walking to church. You're, metaphorically speaking, you bow. Uh-huh. And when you sit down, then you relax and you can start to enjoy yourself. And so therefore, that was my dream as a boy of 17, was to replicate the great Lasser. And so that dream came to me in 79. I was given that dream by Mr. Reed. In 1995, I won three stars in Michelin. Yeah. We've got a big gap in between this. We've got, we've got, we've got to go through the, the, this change. So, Gavroche, so you're there. And how quickly did you raise up the ranks or what oh, happens no. next? They don't, the, the thing with Gavroche, a little like the Michelin in those days, you had to earn your position. Yeah. You had to earn your knowledge. Because if you earn it and work for it, you respect it. Yeah. So then you go from being a commie to being a premier commie. Yeah. I mean, like today they call it a demi-chef de party. Yeah. Never heard of that position. What is that? Something modern or a CDP? I don't get all this. Yeah, it's a chef. To, it's a commie. Then you go chef de party. So you go premier commie next. I got. I was made a, um, a premier commie on the on the meat. Yeah, but still. How long did that take? Oh yeah, because remember when they give you when they give you a promotion, they've also got to give you a wage increase. Of course, yeah. And they didn't like giving you wage increases. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that had something to do with yeah. it as well. Was the kitchen competitive? Because, you know, already I think it's obvious for anybody listening that there's a huge amount of self-determination and self-focus that you've acquired at a relatively young age. The most, the most important quality to possess to survive a three-star world is, one, you have to be able to absorb great pressure. Because remember, three stars then mm. were doing 150, 200 covers a day. Yeah. Today, a three-star restaurant has got 10 tables. Yeah. 30 covers. Yeah. Of sort of little knickknacks. Yeah. You know, set menus. Yeah. That's it, everyone gets that, yes. No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. The old world was very hard. That golden age of gastronomy yeah. was really hard. And you, what you do is like, at say six o'clock, you're set up for service, you'd have to find a job. Yeah. Albo would bring you a case of 24 artichokes to turn, but to turn them beautifully. Yeah. And keep them perfectly white. Yeah. 
you know, for example, like with, with the lamb fat, you'd have to dice it and render it for cooking the lamb in. Yeah. You weren't allowed to mince it, yeah. which, you know, you had to dice it. Everything was about discipline, discipline, discipline. Because also, by being disciplined, you say, yes, chef, even if you haven't done anything wrong. Yeah. And you're getting a bollocking. Yeah. Yes, chef. Yeah. And was there a lot of that? Because, I mean, you know, kitchens are hard places, as, as we all know. As a young man, when you're saying yes, chef, is it that thing you go, this is the way it has to be, whether you agreed yeah. or not? Yeah, it's like being in the army. Yeah. It's exactly the same as being in the army. You don't question your sergeant major. Yeah. There's that very funny story about Tommy Cooper, the sergeant major. Have you ever heard that no. one? Tommy Cooper tells you the story when he was in the army. And the sergeant major says, Cooper, Cooper. He said, yes, sir. He said, I never saw you at camouflage practice this morning. He said, thank you, sir. Thank you. Very <laughs> <laughs> so silly, but very, very funny. So where did you go next? How long, how long did you take in Russia? And what happened that, next? Well, I, I went to Bush la Matine. Yeah. Because Albert thought it was very important. Yeah. So I spent three months in uh, Bush la Matine, which was an amazing experience, really. Because Bush la Matine is the most famous boucherie in Paris. He's Bush mm -hmm. la Matine. And it opened in London under, under Albert. Mm -hmm. And the man who ran it was a chef called Mac Bourgeois. We used to call him Chef Mac. He was chef to a lot of the company, but he set it up. And some of the work you did there was extraordinary. So in the morning, you have to get all the uh, orders ready. So like Jean-Luc Dabayot, yep. ex-Gavros chef, had the restaurant interlude Dabayot in Covent Garden. He would have 18 ducks every day. And you'd have to prepare the ducks for him. So you'd have to pull the neck out, take out the crop, take out the wishbone, flap it under, gut it, draw the ducks, keep the livers in the heart and the gizzard with the neck. But then you'd have to remove the lungs. Mm -hmm. And that is the most, one of the most difficult jobs, is to remove the lungs. Because they've got these, they're protected by these almost razor-sharp uh -huh. bones. You have to put your finger between them to loosen them, get them out. Then you have to take the lungs out because if you leave them in the carcass, when they roast it and they make their jus de canard, the duck juices, it makes it bitter. Right. And then you have to remove the glands from the, um, the parson's nose, punch it there, punch it there, put the little knuckles through the thing, put, and push that back in, and then put the guts in back in the, um, the not the guts, the um, neck back into the carcass and the livers and that, push it back in there. That's it, make sure there's no blood on it, bang. Beautifully ready for roasting. Wow. So that was just one of the things, like preparing the veal brains. I mean, I'd hate to think how many chefs don't know how to prepare veal brains. Yeah. Or how many chefs don't know how to prepare spinal cord. Yeah. I don't think you can use it today. You might be able to, I don't think so, yeah. because of BSU. Yeah. Or burning out dead devil, the, the head of the yeah. veal. Yeah. And then removing the brain, which is quite an interesting job, where you saw through the eyes and through the eyes, you cut across that, and then you pull it, bang, and there's the brains, and you bring them out beautifully. Yeah. I mean, so it was extraordinary, the yeah. jobs that you did. And then what would happen is, when you did all the restaurants, you'd stand there with whatever job you had, and then, say, lady so-and-so came in, and she said, oh, I'd like, um, I'd like my, that, that best end, and I'd like it prepared for Kelly Daniel, and Alan, you'd burn them out to order. All wrapped beautifully, right. taken back out. So you wanted a chicken, a whole chicken, head yeah. on with that, for roast, done to order, in the back. Wow. Bang. So it was for a fricassee de cadar, bang. Okay, fricassee de poulet, sorry, bang, all done. Really hard, a la minute burning out. Yeah. Say so they wanted a gigot d'agneau, if they wanted it boned out, just to take that, that, that bone out there, you do it, unless they wanted it whole, bang. Then you take off a little knuckle and that, bang prepare it all. I mean, it was a really beautiful, but for three months it was really hard, but rather beautiful. And then I went to La Tonte Claire yeah. with Pierre. That was nice. Every Monday morning, five new chefs would start. So there was myself, Bruno, assisting Pierre, and there was Barry the kitchen porter. And then what would happen is every Monday there'd be another five chefs from France. And by Monday night, there'd be, say, three left. By Wednesday, there'd be one left. And by Friday, they've all gone. <laughs> it was back to me, Pierre, and uh, me. So why did you survive them? Maybe I was a self-harmer. 
but it's, I, it's but an I, interesting analogy. But it goes back. That see, that goes back to the um, no, in all seriousness, that goes back to the Hotel St George. Yeah, that's the the, the significance of the Hotel St George. I didn't realise until years later. Bang! What did I learn there? One, I learned how to run. Yeah. To William Hills, but run really fast. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, how to absorb pressure. Three, how to push and push and push and push and push. Say so, yes, chef. Yes, chef. Yes, chef. But now, this is what I really learned. And this is an art within itself. Wilkinson, the chef, was extraordinary. No one could do the pass like he could. Yeah. The ability he had to coordinate and to juggle and to get food out, hot, consistent, and motivate his team was extraordinary. Yeah. I used to do the veg, and I was next to him. So I used to watch him. And so without realizing, I'm absorbing all these, this method and watching, watching, watching how he does it. And then two days a week I had to do the breakfast because Jim, the breakfast chef, was offside to say 130, 150 breakfasts by, yeah. by myself. Okay, it was just in a hot plate, da, 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 whatever. It wasn't yeah. great breakfast, but still you have to be coordinated. Yeah. And doing that many breakfasts is not easy. So that's what I learned at the box tree, uh, at the Hotel St. George. So that then helped me throughout my career, that ability to absorb pressure, that ability to build a multitask, to juggle, to read lots of tickets and store information. That, that whole thing about seeing somebody run a pass, particularly at that level of cooking, is a work of art, is a skill. I mean, really, a chef, he has to be a, a pianist on the stove. That ability to be able to multitask is just extraordinary. Yeah. And it's, I was very fortunate that I saw what I saw. Yeah. And you'll never see that world again. And that world will never be allowed again. Yeah. When you're, work, when you're being worked over 100 hours a week for pennies, yeah. it's never going to happen. No. But you know, the way I looked at it, I didn't look at the money. I looked at the knowledge. That's a, a big thing that you know, we hear a lot at your level, at that really high level of cooking, is the fact that it's about wanting to be a chef. It's not about saying, how much can I earn? Where can I be? What position we're going to be? It's like, this is, you couldn't do anything else if you tried, Marco. Well, well my father advised me, he said to me, he said, Marco, when you go for a job, never ask two questions. One, how much yeah. you're going to get paid? And two, how many hours are you going to work? Yeah. Never ask those questions. Yeah. And what was interesting is by the last part of my career, you're being interviewed by chefs rather than you interviewing them. Yeah. How much, how many hours? Yeah. And you know something? It's, I w had that great privilege of working with some extraordinary individuals. Mm. And not all of them were artists. When you start out as a cook, you use your hands. You're a labourer. Yeah. A person who uses their hands is a labourer. Yeah. But then as you progress, you now become a chef de partie. What happens? You start to use your hands and your brain. Yeah. And now you're a craftsman. Yeah. But very few people push themselves further. And so for me, a person who works with their hands, their brain, and their heart is an artist. Yeah. And if I think of Mac Bourgeois, Roland Lahore, Denis Lobry, they were all artists. Yeah. They were extraordinary cooks. Yeah. And the way they touched their palates were extraordinary. When did you first go it alone? Uh, 87. I opened Harvey's in 87. And again, that was by default. I mean, I thought they were asking me to put money in. I turned up for a job. And they thought I was obviously playing hardball. So they said, we'll arrange for a bank loan for you. So I got a bank loan for £67,000 from Mr. Fisher at the Yorkshire Bank in Fargate, Sheffield. <laughs> and got 33% of harvest. And that's how I got into business, as simple as that, aged 24 years old. Wow, and Harvey's was a phenomenal success. It was, it was on the, well, what was interesting, and this is how life plays that extraordinary, um, how the dice is rolled. 
is I told you about that little book I found mm -hmm. in the back of the hall porters, the hall porters lodge, where it said that you can only go to hotels and restaurants. Yeah. I opened Harvey's, and remember, Harvey's was in 87, January 87, it was a terrible winter, and we were dead, we were on the verge of going bust. And a man walked through the door, and that man was a man called Egan Ronnie. Wow. And he was writing... So how long had you been open when that, when that happened? Three months. And that man walked through and he, he was writing for the Sunday Times, which I didn't realise, he asked to see me. He was fascinated by my name, Marco. And I said, well, my name is Marco Pierre, and my surname is White. And, uh, but he said, how did you get a name like Marco Pierre? I said, well, my mother was Italian. I told him the story, and you know, my, mother, my mother wanted to call me Marco Pino, because my two older brothers are called Graham and Clive. They've got shocking names. <laughs> Graham and Clive. Do you think it would have been a success if you Graham, been Graham or Clive? Well, I don't think so. Can you imagine being called Paul White? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't have been the same, would it? Today's guest from Clive so, White. Yeah, 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 but right. I was watching that film, Paul, with yeah. the alien. Yeah, yeah. And the two in the front are called Graham and Clive, and I'm thinking, they are so like my brothers. Maybe they made this movie <laughs> on my book. Anyway, that's another story. Is the, is so, my mother wanted to call me, because she obviously said to my father, she said, she obviously said, Frank, come on, we've got Graham, we've got, we got Graham and we've got Clive. I'd like to call one of them Marco. Yeah. I'd like to give me one of them an Italian name. So said, okay, so she puts forward the name Marco Pino. And my father being a Yorkshireman, you can imagine what he said. It's a fantastic having, name. I'm not having my son called Pino. <laughs> yeah. You can imagine, can't you? Yeah. In the 60s. Yeah. 61 to be exact. Yeah. No, he's not, he's not no, no. I, I, can, I can do the name Marco, but you've got to find another name to go with it. So then my auntie Luciana, she puts forward the name Marco Pierre. And so therefore, I became Marco Pierre. And so therefore, I was always known as Marco White because I was so embarrassed of my name because if you can imagine him being born on a Leeds council estate yeah. in the 60s called Marco Pierre, it's not a great name, is it? No. Let's be honest. No. I mean, I'm not complaining today. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I like my name very much yeah. today. And so Egon does this whole page in the Sunday Times. And in those days, the Sunday Times was a big paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to get a whole page in a restaurant, yeah. enormous. The headline was all about the chef the young chef with the Italian, the French, and the English name. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And so from that day I became Marco Pierre, and the restaurant was rammed. Wow. And at the end of uh, November, I think it was November of that year, 87, we won our first start, Egan Ronnie. How did that feel? It was interesting, actually. It was, because um, in those days, the Egan Ronnie, you had the Egan Ronnie guide, you had the Michelin guide, and you had the uh, AA guide. And they all gave out of three. And so at the end of the first year, so in January 88, we had one star in all three guides. Yeah. And then in 88, no, in 80, that was the 88 guide. In the, 98, in the 89 guide, we retained one star in each guide. Yeah. And then in the 1990 guide, we went to two stars, Egan Ronnie two stars in Michelin, and we had two rosettes AA. Yeah. And so, but what we'd, what we'd done is, is there'd been no movement since 84. So if you think the Michelin guy in 84, there was the two three-star restaurants, yeah. Gavroche and Waterside. There was Tante Claire, Manoir, Nicole on two stars. Mm -hmm. And I joined that little group. So therefore, I joined that little ech that, that top echelon of gastronomy in Britain, and I'd sort of worked for them all. But you're so young to have hit that. I was, well, the thing is, is I, was, uh, I think that you know, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Because what I did do is I saw the tail end of Escoffier's world, and I saw the beginning of the modern world. Yeah. And so my values in the kitchen are still quite old-fashioned, and they're still sort of from that world of Escoffier. Yeah. And it's like I walked into a two-star kitchen last year and Swedish head chef, two stars. It's got air conditioning, it's got extraction, and it's got induction. I mean, they should just open a salad bar because yeah. my food was cold. Yeah, yeah. That is the problem. You want a kitchen which is really hot. Yeah. So therefore the food stays hot. Yeah, yeah. Air conditioning and extraction yeah. is lunacy. Yeah. I mean, when I used to walk out of the kitchen of Harvey's, 
and this is no, no fabrication. I take my chef's jacket off, and I could rinse it. Can I? Yeah. It would just pour with sweat. Not yeah. just drip out. Yeah. Pour out. And I used to drink gallons of water a night. Food must be hot. What were, you, what were you like as a boss around that time when you, you know, you've gone from standing start to two do you know, stars? Do you, know the boy, do you know the boy who's in white heat with his back of his jacket cut out and his trousers slashed because he complained it was too hot? Yeah. He's working for me still today. <laughs> he's, he's, doing the, he's doing the pop-up restaurant in Ascot today. Wow. Yeah, he's still with me all these years later. Wow. Yeah, it's... it's yeah, because it's, 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 you build that special bond. Yeah. I mean, like JC, like Robert Reed, Donovan Cook... The list goes on. We were there for you, Roger Pisey. We were there for years together. Yeah. And as I would say, this is why, and when I say this, it's, I mean it. I never won three stars. The team. The team won yeah. three stars. They were the orchestra. They created the symphony. Yeah. All I was was the conductor and the composer. I think you might be selling yourself. No, 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 no. Because you need all of those people. I'm just one link in a very large chain. Because remember, we were doing nearly 200 covers a day. Yeah. And we had 30 plus in the kitchen. We had 50 in the front of the house. Yeah. You're just one little link. Yeah. Within that chain. But coming back to what you were saying before about all of the inspirations in your life, all the teaching in your life have all been storytellers. And clearly, therein lies the thing. What a good storyteller does is, is make somebody believe in that story, want to be part of it. And clearly that's what, that's what you did and still do. You have to, with your team, you have to make them dream. And by making them dream, they'll follow you. But this is the, this is the reality. Make them dream, and then they turn your dream into a reality. Yeah. But by doing that, you give them their dream and you show them what's possible. Yeah. When I arrived in Gavroche, it was two stars in Michelin. To have been part of that company, which went on to win three stars, yeah. was extraordinary. Yeah. And you know, then watching Waterside win three stars, Kaufman get two stars. I mean, to have been part of that world, because the Rue Company in those days dominated. Yeah. And I saw two of my ex-bosses lose their three stars and you do something it's a little bit like being a heavyweight boxer mm-hmm. how, how many times do you want to get punched and look winning three stars or being part of a team that wins three stars is the most exciting journey yeah. it really is an exciting I'm journey sure. retaining it is the most boring job on earth I came from that world of Michelin so remember when I was part of that world the head inspector of Michelin, Mr. Derek Brown, did not have the power to give two or three stars. He only had the power to give one star. What he had the power to do was to make recommendations to Paris, to Michel Negelin. I didn't know that. And Negelin would come over with his number two. Yep. They'd dine in your restaurant for three. And at the end of that meal, Nejelan and his number two would either tell Derek Brown yes or no. Wow. So if you not unexpectedly get a star, if you, if you get the first star, I quite often feel that the chefs then fall into almost two camps. The camp that sort of says, well, this is what I do. Great, I've got it, but it's not going to change what I do. But then for other chefs, do you think it almost becomes intimidating? Like you said, it becomes boring. They go, I well, don't develop too much because I want to retain this star. Winning three stars, you, it's an attacking game. We live in a, I, see, I believe that we live in a world of refinement, not invention. Yeah. It's about refinement, refinement, refinement. Yeah. I'm not into peculiar combinations. I like classic French cuisine. Yeah. It works. Yeah. Beef with red wine and marabone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. It's sensational, isn't it? Yeah. You know, a nice Côte de Vaux with a fumio seps, with a fricassee of um, with, uh, wild mushrooms, say some, some pomme mousseline, you know, bang. Or some petit poire francaise done beautifully on the side. I mean, what more do you want? Yeah. And the great thing about the world that I came from is that generosity was your presentation. Mm-hmm. And because they were generous, food retained heat. I mean, today, where chefs have been extremely clever is they've turned a canopy party into a dinner party. Yeah. 
<laughs> and that's genius. Yeah. And they say, did you enjoy it? Well, I don't know. I only had one mouthful. Yeah. I, I like to indulge. I'm so with you on I that. like to drown I'm so with you in my that. emotions because eating to me is all about the emotional impact food has yeah. on me. It's how something hits me emotionally. It's like I said, walking into a three star, it's bang. It's that emotional impact. Yeah. And that's what life's all about. It's like when you w bump into a beautiful girl, the emotional impact is just wow. Yeah. And the world's filled with lots of beautiful girls, but every yeah. so often, one just walks through the door and just bang, there's something about it. You can't describe it. And eating is the same. You know, when you put something in your mouth, it's the, ex the, the explosion of emotion yeah. should be so enormous. And, you know, you have to give yourself. And that's the job of a cook. And when people ask me, why did I give up cooking? The truth is, because when I was a boy, a chef had to be in the kitchen yeah. to win three stars. Couldn't be somewhere else in the world. And I was no longer enjoying it. My children were growing up. I'd leave home in the morning and at seven o'clock. How my old were you then? It, it, when, it, when is that point where you decided? Right, okay. Yeah. 38. And I was 38 years old. And I'd leave home in the morning and my children are sleeping. And I'd go home in the night time and my children are sleeping. And I worked six days a week. The restaurant was open six days. And I'm a great believer, yes, I do accept a chef is allowed to stray from the stove. I, I, I accept that. But he must always stay close to the flame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very important. And I didn't want to live a lie and pretend I cook when I don't cook. Yeah. And so therefore, I'm a great believer in honesty. And I was fishing one Sunday morning and I caught a salmon and I released it. And whenever I caught a salmon, I'd always sit down, have a fag, and rest the pool. And this little thought came into my mind. I'm being judged by people who have less knowledge than me. Mm -hmm. So the truth of the question is, what are three stars in Michelin worth? Yeah. If you've been given an award by people who have less knowledge, it's worth nothing. And that's what gave me the strength to give back my stars and to walk away. Was it liberating? It was, I'll come back to that in a moment, but let me go back to this one little point. And this is another thought I had that same day. We buy tickets to watch Elton John. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the Royal Albert Hall. We sit down. It's all very exciting, isn't it? The curtain opens and on walks his number two to play his piano and sing his songs. Would you want your money back? Yes. <laughs> what's the difference yeah and so therefore you can't live a lie yeah and yes I, I got my freedom but what was extraordinary I became incredibly lost yeah uh, yes and so I became incredibly lost and I did exactly what I did when I was six because at six my mother died and I turned to mother nature she was my surrogate mother she looked after me mm -hmm. and at 38 years old and that was an interesting question a journalist asked me, I said, I'm I took her for lunch. I said, I'm sure your editor's given you a large list, a long list of questions to ask me. She said, no, my editor's not allowed to interfere with my copy. And Marco, I have no questions. I just want to listen to you. <laughs> and at the end of it, she said, Marco, yes, I have one question. It's the cleverest question I've ever been asked. Did you retire from cooking? At 38, because that was the age your mother was when she died. Wow. And so I walked home. Wow. And I worked out the exact age my mother was when she died. And the exact age I was when I re retired from the stove, the length of time bank. There's one day difference. Wow. Had the 23rd of December, 99, been on a Sunday, I'd have been exactly the same age as my mother. Would have been my last service. Wow. I mean, we're, 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 we're rapidly kind of, I, I could talk to you all day, but during, during the, the peak of it, white heat, I have, you cured, I have cured lots of insomniacs. <laughs> <laughs> during that, that peak time of white heat, and like, you know, you're, you're still a very, very attractive man. You're a gorgeous looking young man. And there's amazing pictures of you in the kitchen. Did you enjoy that time of life, though? Well, the truth is I never thought I was good looking. It's, it's interesting, it's, it's, um, I think my self-esteem was quite low. And I think that want to prove to others 
was very important to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like to this day, I don't give up on any job I start. I'm a great believer you start a job, you finish it. Yeah. I started a job and that job was to win three stars in Michelin. And in 95, I won three stars in Michelin with four black knives and forks. And so now I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And in the 1998 guide, we got three stars with five red knives and forks. I replicated Lassa yeah. without ever going there. Yeah. And the first restaurant, only restaurant in Britain, to have three stars with five red knives and forks. The waterside had wow. three stars and four red knives and forks. Yeah. And so therefore, the importance of it is that if you have a dream, then I said you have a duty and responsibility to make it come true. Yeah. But like I spoke about those three great chefs, Denis Lobry, Roland de Hoare, Mac Bourgeois, extraordinary talents, yeah. artists. Success is born out of luck. Luck is being given the opportunity. It's awareness of mind that takes advantage of that opportunity. And some people don't have the courage to jump. Missing my coach. Yeah. It's like the urinary guide in the box in the book. Yeah. Bang. It's like a sixty-seven thousand pound loan. Yeah. Yeah. On four hundred quid a week. You have to be prepared to take risks. And you have to be prepared to fall. And I'm not a person who measures success by wealth. I measure success by emotional growth, mm-hmm. emotional intelligence, discovery of oneself. If you, can, if you can find the strength within yourself to walk down that road of self-discovery, when you get to the end of it, you now have the opportunity to accept yourself. It, it's, and it, through acceptance of yourself, if you have that strength, then you love for the right reasons, you give for the right reasons, you share for the right reasons, and also you have the opportunity to realise your true potential professionally, whatever that may be. And if we think we create our dreams, but how many people want them once they've got them? Because when we're 16, 17, 18, 19, we have these dreams. Actually, when we get them, do we really want them? Almost the chase is better than the reality. That's it. Yeah. It's funny, but, you know, as I say, you know, you were very much the inspiration for the whole starting point of this podcast. And everything that you said highlights exactly why you are the name that comes up more than any other from all of the kind of top chefs that, that we talk to because of what you do. And, it, it, you know, it's been... I, I could talk to you all day. I have two things left that I have to do with you. Can I have multiple choice? So one... Okay. Yes, you can. So one is... Um, so you and I, from here, we can go anywhere in the world and you're going to take me somewhere to eat. It can be high-end, low-end, a coffee bar, a sweet shop, wherever it might be. Somewhere that if you were going to take me on one dining experience, where are we going, Mark? I would take you to a restaurant in the south of France in the village called Saint-Paul-de-Vence. Mm-hmm. It's a restaurant with rooms. It's called La Colombe d'Or. Mm-hmm. It has no Michelin stars. The menu hasn't changed since 1955. Wow. It's an extraordinary, um, extraordinary establishment. It really is, it's special. And what's interesting, it has more stars than any other restaurant in the world. When I'm talking about stars, I'm talking about famous people. Uh But it's so understated. It's not even expensive. Yeah. But it's very beautiful. What are we going to eat? I mean, you could start with the crudité, with all the vegetables mm-hmm. and the boiled eggs, a plate of charcuterie. It's just very nice. Yeah. Or you get the hors d'oeuvres. They bring about 12 of them in these little brown, do you know the old-fashioned brown dishes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get like 10 or 12 of them on yeah. in front of you. Yeah. And you just spend your day there. Yeah. But I'll tell you a little story now. This is an interesting, this is an interesting story. This is how bizarre life is. The first time I ever went to Colombdor, I'm sitting there and I suppose I've got one of those eyes which appreciate beauty in whatever form it presents itself to me in. And on this occasion, it's the maitre d'. Mm-hmm. She's quite fine. And she's, she's speaking French. Then she comes to me and she starts to speak English. But it's impeccable, is her English. But there's a scent 
of a northern accent. Mm -hmm. I said, you speak very good English. She said, I was born in Leeds, where I was born. I didn't mm -hmm. say that. I said, and uh, which school did you go to? And she said, Alison High. And through the filing cabinets of my mind, through my subconscious, I said, Miss Turnbull. She said, how do you know my name? I said, we were in class together. No. Actually, we weren't in class. It was her sister who was in my class. She was two years above me. Yeah, yeah. But her sister was in my class. And her mother and father divorced. And the mother was born in St. Paul de Vence and went back to St. Paul de Vence with the two girls. But isn't that interesting, all those years later? Brilliant. And is that in that little bit of that subconscious, how the subconscious mind works? Yeah. It just trickles out. But no, but that's what I would take you. Okay. Uh, and I think you, what you'd like, I think you'd like the honesty. Like you might get the rognon de vol with the, with the three mustards. Yeah. You get the beef and the red wine with the marrow bone. Just proper eating. Yeah. It is. And you just sit there. It's just very, very understated, but truly beautiful in the most yeah. beautiful. And they have amazing art. Yeah. Because in the sort of 30s, all the art boys would go like Picasso, Chigal. And rather than hand over cash, they'd hand over a painting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still like that world. And, and then the final thing that we have to do. Now, it, previously um, on grilling, we, we've given our chefs a challenge to barbecue something. But now we're going to actually cook. And this How is quite exciting. incredible that I actually get to kind of watch and join you and then eat the food that you'll cook. What are we going to cook, Marker? Well, chef has got some fresh salmon. Yeah. And he's got some best ends of lamb. And I think, for me, lamb chops are the ultimate, really. Yes, I They are so yeah. delicious, and they're such a luxury. Yeah. And, okay, today it's farm salmon, but when I was a boy, I used to see the wild salmon come through yeah. the back door. I remember at the Hotel St. George in 1978, I was on 15 quid a week. Yeah. The salmon came in, a 10-pound salmon came in, 50 quid. Yeah. Covered in sea life, looking like a bar yeah. of silver, just amazing. Yeah. But see... But that's going back to my early life with nature. Yeah. That love affair. And as I say, great chefs have three things in common. Yeah. Firstly, they accept and they respect that Mother Nature is a true artist. Yeah. And they're just the cook. Secondly, everything that they do becomes an extension of themselves. It just flows out of your fingers. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, they give you insight into the world they were born into, the world which inspired them. Yeah. And they serve it on their plates. And that's what I believe great cooks do. So we've got lamb chops, we've got salmon. Ah, yes. And yeah. then, <laughs> and then, we're going to make a ketchup vinaigrette. Oh, wow. So ketchup, Dijon mustard, Tabasco, Worcester, because everyone's then got it in, the, everyone's got all these ingredients at home. Yeah. Olive oil, white wine vinegar, chopped shallots, Chervil, tarragon and chives, bang, delicious. But with the salmon, mm. ketchup salmon is just sensational. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And then we've got some lamb chops. I might, I might do the lamb chops with the ketchup vinegar, or I might do them a la Dijonese, where I just spread them with a bit of Dijon mustard, and then dap them in chives. They can, because I like bones, blood and flesh and bones, it's quite delicious. Yeah. Who's hungry? You're hungry. Marco, it's, it's been an utter joy. See, I, could, I could sit and listen to you all day. And it's funny, of all the, all the grillings that we've done, there's not been... I'm looking around the room at all of our team that are here and no one has dared move. No one's dared glance at their phone. No one's dared do anything. You captivated all your, your storytelling is amazing. And I think all I'm doing, really, is exactly what Mr Lamb, Mr Reed, Mr Long, Albert, Pierre... Bourgeois, Denis Lobby, did years ago. They just shared their story. Yeah. They give you a little insight into the world that they came from. And I think that's all you can do. And sometimes, I mean, I was inspired enormously by, um, by the people I worked with. And, and, I, and, I, and the thing is, is it's, we're all growing rather old now. And I suppose I'm the youngest, I'm the last of my generation, really, because well, Albert and Michelle have gone. Yeah. Pierre's now 75, I think. Nico's not very well. Raymond is, I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. And then there's this new generation. Yeah, yeah. 
Thank you for sharing no, your story you. with us. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to you showing me how to turn that barbecue on. Marco said storytelling is one of the things he felt was so important when you teach people. That has been some of the greatest storytelling and sharing I've ever had in my life. Bring on Chef Giaconori. Now, if you want to see him make his surf and turf salmon and lamb, head to weber.com forward slash grilling right now, where you can also find videos of the recipes prepared by Yoso Mottolenghi, Andy Oliver and John Tarode. The Weber website is also the place to find loads of great recipes to cater for all tastes and seasons. That's it from us for another season. Hopefully, we'll get to do it all again soon. Grilling is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>